Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And I tell you, everybody, I am more than excited today. I actually feel emotional when I am sitting across from my guest, Rita Rudner, because I have followed her career from when I started in this business, and I'm honored that she gave me the time. I am down here at her home in Dana Point at this beautiful, beautiful state on the ocean. And now I know why I'm doing the podcast here and not in my podcast studio, because if I lived here, I would give a big F you to everyone in my life and just say, hey, I'm going to be hanging out here for a while. One of the things that always inspired me about Rita as we listen to the ocean in the background. I think about what it takes to be an extraordinary artist and what it takes to navigate in a world of people that are essentially very broken and people who do certain acts that aren't necessarily the kind of acts that you do, yet you have to work on stages with these people. And Rita, her act is like the Four Seasons, just the most incredible, classy act you could ever see in your life. There is nothing derogatory, there is nothing mean, there is no language that makes you feel like, oh my God, I can't bring anybody to this show. Yet, oftentimes, Rita, and I would see her perform, with people like Andrew Dice Clay, Rodney Dangerfield, some of the most blue comedians you could ever imagine. And each and every time, it always appeared like she never had a problem following them, being on the same show with them. She had this way of being able to take that audience and bring them into her world and not let the outside factors affect her. So much so that 
people like Andrew Dice Clay and the relationship she has with him still forms to this day where she just did his television show for Showtime. And that lets you know to be successful in these times as well as the past, you have to be able to stay in your lane where you are, but not be afraid to mingle with other lanes and other people who do different things while still staying true to yourself. And I think of Rita's career, and when you sold over 2 million tickets to comedy audiences, that's just all you need to know. If your people follow you from television, and then they follow you in the live rooms, and they pay big money for you to see what you have to offer, it's tremendous, and it means an extraordinary amount as an artist. So if there's any lesson that I gleam from sitting in this beautiful place today, is that if you can figure out a way in your profession to take what you do, your originality, and stay true to it, and work hard, really, really hard, and don't be diverted by other people who have different agendas and different ways that they do their job, and just keep going, and you can mingle and go with them and be in their world, but you stay in your world, and people will notice, and if you do that, I can guarantee you, you'll have a chance at the kind of career that Rita Rudner has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. So excited here with Rita Rudner. And I can't think of a better way to start than give her a glowing introduction. Wake her up at the end. Okay, here goes. Beginning her career as a Broadway dancer, Rita Rudner has flourished for over three decades, selling millions of tickets all over the world. She rose to fame due to a variety of HBO specials and countless late-night appearances on shows like The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, which established Rudner as one of the premier female comics to emerge from the comedy boom in the 80s. Rudner was born in Miami and after graduating from high school at 15, headed to New York City to embark on a career as a dancer. She appeared in several musicals, including the original Broadway productions of Follies and Mac and Mabel. Rudner took a full-time leap from chorus lines to punch lines in the early 80s as a frequent guest on both Late Night with David Letterman and The Tonight Show. Her first solo HBO special, Rita Rudner's One Night Stand, was nominated for several awards, as was her BBC television show, which later appeared on A&E. Rita's two one-hour specials for HBO, Born to be Mild and Married Without Children, were rating standouts. Rudner has filled car Carnegie Hall three times, Los Angeles' old Universal Amphitheater twice, which held 6,000 people, and has performed sellout tours of Australia and England as well. Rudner has written a total of five books, including two fiction novels, Tickled Pink and Turning the Tables. 
in 89, Rudner married her writing partner, British producer-director Martin Bergman. The two of them wrote Peter's Friends, which starred Emma Thompson and won the Peter Sellers Award for Best Comedy Film, Best Ensemble Acting, and was also nominated for the Writers Guild Award for Best Original Screenplay. The couple also co-wrote A Weekend in the Country, starring Jack Lemmon, Dudley Moore, Richard Lewis, and Rita herself. In 2003, Rita launched from Las Vegas her first syndicated daily show, Ask Rita, which won Rudner the Top Program Host Award from the Women in Television and Radio. She's written for two Academy Awards with host Steve Martin, has performed for former President Obama, and recently recorded a special Rita Rudner Live from Las Vegas for PBS as well as BBC Radio. In 2016, Rudner co-starred in Act 3 at the prestigious Laguna Playhouse opposite Charles Shaughnessy, also directed by her husband Martin. In 2000, she was asked to fill in for six weeks at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. She was so successful, the run turned into six months, and the MGM built Rita her own 450-seat theater. Since 2001, Rudner has performed extensively in Las Vegas, selling almost 2 million tickets and becoming the longest running solo comedy show in Las Vegas history. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Rita Rudner. Hello, thank you for having me. And I I have to tell you something because you were saying about all the people that I'm friendly with and going out of your lanes and in different lanes. And do you know who I was really good friends with who you'd be surprised to know? Sam Kinison. And Sam and I used to get together when we were on the road. And I remember once uh, we were in Tampa together and he called me up and we were hanging out afterwards and we were talking. And I just, I thought he was so funny and he was such a nice guy. Sam and I were on the Rodney Dangerfield special. But it was me and Sam and Louie and Bob Saget and um, Sam and I got friendly. And he was just such a wonderful guy. And I even uh, Martin, my husband, Martin Bergman, because we write movies too, we wrote a movie with Sam in mind and uh, it never really really came to fruition, but it would have been so funny because I, I, I just loved working with him. And I don't have many regrets in my life, and I have silly regrets. So this is one, you want to hear one, a silly regret? Of course. There was a really good picture of um, Sam and me, and uh, we didn't make a copy of it. And when we wanted to do the movie for HBO, we sent it along to uh, with the script to HBO and they didn't make the movie and they never sent my picture of me and Sam back and it was such a nice picture and I really wish I had it but so that's not a big regret and I still have my picture with me and Sam in my mind but it's interesting that you mentioned that special because I did a podcast with Louie Anderson Louie and I are great friends an amazing man again you're friends with Louie who is more in your lane Mm -hmm. and friends with Sam and you know who else I work a lot with who I love Brad Garrett and he makes me laugh all the time <laughs> there's nobody who can be funnier and dirtier than brad garrett <laughs> and bob saget another friend of mine absolutely <laughs> so i never think that oh my gosh you shouldn't be dirty if you're doing co-. you know i hate that kind of thing i think if it's funny it's funny and if it's not funny it's not funny and you should be funny whichever way you want to be funny and if you're dirty and funny that's good and if you're not dirty and funny that's good too so as long as you're funny 
So I remember Rodney Dangerfield asking me to do that special too because um, he was another good friend of mine. And in fact, he bought a joke from me, the only joke I ever sold. Well, I worked with Steve Martin too um, on the Oscars, but the, like a joke where you go, you want to buy this joke. And uh, he gave me $50 for giving him this joke. He was such a nice guy. And he saw me on stage and he pulled me aside and he said... Um, I saw your set. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, it takes a long time. Sometimes you never make it. I said, oh, well, thank you for the, uh, <laughs> thank you for the optimism. <laughs> he said, but you want to be on my special. I think you're really funny. I said, yes, I do want to be on your special. Thank you very much. And he put me on his special. So I spoke to Louie about that special. Rodney asked Louie to do that same special. He says, Louie, I know you've been on television and done a bunch of things, but I want you to close the show. And Louie's like, I don't know. You got Saget. You got Sam on the show. It's you're going to close the show. It's going to be great. Everybody will love you. And so Sam goes on somewhere in the middle of the show, in Louis's mind, destroys the place. That was his big breakout like special, yeah. If you could dream of the kind of performance you want and you're a blue comic, their only place you could do a show would be on this special. And Louis said after he saw the response to Sam, he got up. And he just started walking around danger fields outside and he kept saying to himself, what have I done? I accepted this spot last and this guy kills and there's nothing left for me here in the show. And then he started talking himself back and said, listen, you're Louis Anderson. Just do what you do. The audience will come around and they'll be with you. And it was a real breakout for him. For you, obviously, when people were putting shows together, they're not putting the show together where it's like Kinnison and Saget and Dice Clay, and then let's put Rita on after. They would be cognizant of the trajectory of the show or where there's sometimes where they'd be like, okay, Rita, you're going on after Dice. This is something that really happened. Uh, my very first performance on HBO, it was Pat Benatar. And Pat Benatar was a house performer and managed by Catch a Rising Star at the time. But I remember Andy Kaufman was on it. I was, uh, and I it was introducing me, and it was the uh, I was the only new comedian on it, and it was, I did like three minutes or something like that. And um, I was waiting in the trailer, and the producer Pat, John Moffat and Pat, Pat Lee. Lee. Yes, okay. So Moffat and Lee, they came back and they said, you know, you're on right after Andy Kaufman, and we don't think it's going to fly because he's going to disrupt the audience and if the audience, you know, they don't know where they are by the time Andy Kaufman is finished and there's going to be somebody heckling him from the audience and then, you know, you're, you're so mild. So nobody is looking now. Why don't we just sneak you on right now? You do your three minutes and do it before Andy Kaufman. And I said, yes, please. And um, I went on and I did my three minutes and whatever, you know, my jokes that I'd written so far, they worked. And then Andy Kaufman came on and absolutely destroyed the audience. Audience, with somebody heckling him from the audience. Not knowing if it was a real heckler or a planted heckler. Oh, it was his his manager, I think. Bob Zamuda. Yeah, I think that was, somebody was heckling, and they were calling each other's names, and he was saying, and the whole place was in disarray, and I went up to Pat Lee and said, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for thinking of me in that way. So that was a very lucky uh, little thought that she had. You know how there's certain comedians who put an opening act on before them that sets them up perfectly and then there's those comedians that put on the guy that's the standing ovation guy and you often say to yourself why are you putting on the guy who's getting the standing ovation before you and when i ask them the question they always say if i'm going to get better 
I don't want to play tennis with somebody who's my equal or less than me. I want somebody better than me or who perceived could be better than me. I've never found a comedian who played tennis. (laughs) (laughs) It never occurred to me. I don't use an opening act um, because I think that I remember I was an opening act for a long time and it was so difficult. I remember I was an opening act for Julio Iglesias and a lot of the Sergios. I can't remember which Sergios, you know, and I would be, and they didn't really want to see me and they wanted to see the real person, you know, and I'd be there and they'd go, and now please welcome. And everyone would go, yay, 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 Rita Redner. Ugh. You know, cause they want to see Julio Iglesias. That's what they bought a ticket for. That's who they want to see. So I don't, I, unless like my daughter opens for me now because she's my daughter and I love her. Molly Bergman, her first release came out on iTunes entitled California Girl. Yes. And all of the proceeds, actually I do play tennis and she's on the tennis team (laughs) and uh, all the proceeds go to a tennis foundation that we support uh, in Las Vegas because she grew up playing tennis in Las Vegas. So I, I never thought of that. I just always feel sorry for opening acts because that's who, that's not who people want to see. That's not who they came to see. So I just do more. I just do 20 more minutes. Does your daughter, after she gets through performing in front of you, say, yeah, I don't know why I'm doing this. Nobody wants to see me. No, because she loves she because I say she's my daughter (laughs) and everyone wants to see her. But lately she does a double act, too, with another uh, singer who's very good. um, But she does in does restaurants and things like that. And I always and she says, uh, I'm going to sing four songs. Don't worry, they're short. And uh, (laughs) and she's and she's good. So it's like a nice, nice little thing. And also, I never you know, whenever I do have an opening act, when somebody insists that I have an opening act and and places that I'm going, I always want to listen carefully to the opening act the the first time because I want to make sure that something I do doesn't step on something they've done and it destroys the laugh that I would have gotten. So I always have to manipulate my routine around if somebody has the same frames of reference. Does your daughter, after a show, come back in the dressing room and say, listen, I got my check and I think I deserve a little more than this? We take her shopping. (laughs) (laughs) She buys a new dress. She's happy. She's a uh, low maintenance. (laughs) So far. I think think she's about to get high maintenance, but she's still low maintenance. Right now she has to, she's in honors biology. She has to worry about that. And is it hard seeing your daughter start her career and knowing how hard it was for you in the beginning? I tell her, but nobody knows how hard it is. Otherwise they wouldn't do it. It's a good thing. And I think my philosophy of um, human existence boiled down is if you've got a passion in your life, you're going to be okay because you have something that drives you forward and that you want to do every day. I've been doing comedy for what, 30 years and I still want to do it every day. I still love writing a new joke in my notebook. I love writing a new essay. Martin and I love writing movies. So I loved it. And when I was a dancer, I got up to dance every day. I always wanted to dance. That's all I want to do. And I tried her in dance and she hated it. And tennis, she liked it. Music, she loved it. And she just loves it. In fact, we can't get her to stop singing, uh, playing the guitar and the piano in her room at night. We have to make her go to sleep. So I just feel that um, as long as you have something that you really love that keeps you going, it doesn't matter. It could be a hobby that you love. It could be collecting stamps. If it's something that really you're passionate about, you're going to be okay. It's always been my feeling that if you're a comedian, and you're doing the right kind of comedy. You could be performing 
in a bathroom in Peoria, Illinois and videotaping it and sending it out and people will find you. But when you're a musician, you could be getting standing ovations in the main room of Peoria and it's very hard to make it. But as long as you love what you're doing, then it's okay. If you love playing in your bathroom in Peoria and that's as long as you're doing it. You just have to keep doing it. And, um, you know, comedy changes, too. So I feel that there's a new type of comedy out now because, you know, with YouTube and Vines and everything, it's uh, it's a little, I think it's a little less professional because you can be seen right away. You don't have to work in a dark club at 2 a.m. for four years before somebody sees you. You're seen right away. So, you know, everything has changed. And that's, in fact, my first novel that I wrote called Tickle Pink. I've written two novels and three uh, essay books. But um, the first one, my first novel, Tickle Pink, was about comedy in the 80s because that was, uh, that was kind of, this is my favorite sentence, my, a fortuitous confluence of events, because it was the birth of cable TV and stand-up comedy came together when cable TV had no money, and they said, what can I put on for entertainment that's cheap? And then they found a comedian in stand, in, standing in front of a brick wall with a microphone, and voila, it was a marriage made in heaven. Cheap entertainment and uh, channels that had no money. <laughs> so it was, and we had been working in the clubs for years, Jerry and Bill and Paula. Jerry Seinfeld, Paula Poundstone, and Bill Maher. They were all working before me because I had a whole career on Broadway where I was a dancer before I did comedy. But, um, so by the time cable TV came on, and then David Letterman started, who loved comedy, he just wanted to have young comedians on, and he was our idol. I mean, he was our uh, our comedy god. And you were on that show 11 times. Yes, and I was on, then finally I auditioned for five years before I got on Carson. For Jim McCauley. Yes. How many auditions did you do before you got it? Oh, I gave up because he just wouldn't, you know, I always give the credit where credit is due. Um, Alex, who is Bud Friedman's wife, I used to go to the improv, and every time I would go on stage, Jim McCauley would just walk out of the room right in front of me, and he just wouldn't even wouldn't even listen. He wouldn't hear it. He wouldn't do it. How do you psychologically do I, your set after that? I just said, you know, um, there are other shows. If I don't do the Tonight Show, I'd love to do it, but I can't change his mind I can just be as funny as I can be what do you think it was about you that he didn't like I think he was dating a girl uh, at the time who was the only female comedian who was on but I don't think he wanted another female comedian on that show another young female comedian I, was my guess because there were no other young female comedians on and he would just walk out and I, okay whatever so one night he was sitting with Alex and Bud and um I came on and he started to walk out and Alex Friedman said, what is wrong with you? I mean, she was so sweet. I just loved her and I love Bud. And why, why don't you listen to this girl? She's really funny. And he, she pulled him and she sat him down and he, she made him listen to my set. And uh, he finally put me on the show. It was after, I don't know, three or four years. And then Johnny loved me. And then I was a, a regular guest on the show for years until he retired. So, but things happen or they don't happen. But in the meantime, I was on other TV shows and I was on other cable networks. So I was, all, I was having a career with, without that show, but that show certainly did help me. Have you ever symbolically grabbed somebody's jacket and said, I love this person. Please watch I this person. I don't, I don't watch comedy that much. 
So there isn't an opportunity for, but I do have idols. I mean, one of my huge idols who just passed away was Mary Tyler Moore. That was the last time I cried was a few days ago. I mean, she was just, and I did Carnegie Hall with her and I did um, Comic Relief with her. And she was just sweet and graceful and charming and funny. And there's so many, but there's so many good female comedic actresses now because I watch movies more than you can see. I don't go to comedy clubs a lot to hang out anymore because I have a family and I have to cook dinner. And I, when I work, I go out and I work and I come home and I walk the dog. But um, one of my favorite shows that I watch now is with Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy and his son, I think Daniel Levy. And I love Schitt's Creek. It's just my favorite show. So, you know, if I ever, and I did a reading once with Catherine O'Hara and I just couldn't believe I was in the same room with Catherine O'Hara. I just love her so much. And, um, you know, there's there's uh, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey and and uh, Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig and my new favorite, McKinnon. They're fabulous. They're just fabulous comedic actresses. And I see them because I watch more TV than I go out. Do you ever watch stand-up on television? No, because I, it's just, I did... Forever, I was concentrated, and even when I was when I was first starting, I wanted to listen to people like I got because um, I'm so old. I listen to albums, you know, and uh, yeah, Jack Benny. I used to get Jack Benny albums out, and George Burns, and Woody Allen, and that, those are my two idols, Woody Allen and Jack Benny. You have that cast iron timing like they had. Well, I I studied their you know, their, their performances for a really long time. And that's who I kind of, uh, I, I, I kind of grew up watching. And even though I was friends with both Joan Rivers and Phyllis Diller, and I thought they were amazing women, but they each had their very own specific style of comedy. And their style of comedy wasn't something that was um, natural to me. Were they supportive of you? Yes. You know, when you see somebody on the way up that potentially could take one of your slots. I, I don't get, I just think I have my own little slot and I have my house. I have a beach house. Why do I care? This is not a beach house. <laughs> this is the Kennedy compound here. Well, you know, I want everyone to be successful and I don't ever want to say, I don't want jealousy to come into play where it would ever... Um, I would I would think of myself as a smaller person because everyone has their time. Like um, Amy Schumer, I think she's terrific and she's finally been allowed to write her own movie and star in her own movie and be her own boss. And when I was in television, it was very difficult. People would say, well, you're funny, but you need someone to write it. You need a showrunner. You, you know, you can't do it you, this, you can't do that. And now it's kind of opened up where people are doing their own thing. So I'd like for everyone to be successful. Tell me a moment in your career in the beginning where you said to yourself, I'm never doing anything else again. I, I always loved thinking of a joke. And whenever I had a joke that worked and it worked on stage, it was just, a, you know, a, a fantastically satisfying moment. So I think I still get those moments whenever I have a new thought that works or a new joke that works. But when I knew that I, when I finally knew that I think what I was doing was on the right track was my first Letterman appearance because up till then 
I was a dancer, singer, actress on Broadway, and people had told me how many beats to hold a note, where to put my foot, how long to hold it there, scripts, what to say, director told me how to say what I was learning to say, and all of a sudden I felt such freedom that I had thought of this five minutes of material and I had said it on national television and people had laughed and it had gone well and I said this is this is what I really want to do for the rest of my life and I was so satisfied and then I came home and um, the next morning my doorman Caesar said I, I saw your um, your show on David Letterman last night you're really funny and I said thank you Caesar and he said when are you going to be on again and I said oh I'm going to have to think of five more minutes of material, aren't I? <laughs> and I got so scared. And I said, what if I'm never going to think of another joke again? And I went, oh, Caesar, I have to go back upstairs. <laughs> I got to go. I got to think of more jokes. But, you know, Rodney said that to me, too. Rodney said, uh, we always used to talk about writing jokes. And um, Rodney was always saying, I, I'm always scared. I'm never going to be able to think of another joke. And uh, I was... I was in Hawaii with HBO because I used to do um, retreats for uh, when they used to take the cable people to Hawaii for their annual um, thank you for you know carrying HBO on the, before satellite. And me and Robert Klein and Bill Maher used to do it all the time. And Dave, Dennis Miller, another friend of mine. So um, I answered the phone and Rodney, I said, well, how did you find me here in Hawaii, Rodney? And he said, oh, I have ways, uh, you know, and I have to ask you a question because you would know the answer to this. And I said, what, Rodney? And he said, where should I work in Vegas? Because you've worked all the places in Vegas. <laughs> Rodney, I can't believe you're calling me and asking me where I should work in Vegas. And I told him what I thought. And I, I can't remember where I said. I think I was playing the Desert Inn at that point. But um, I told him about all the different rooms and which room I thought would be the best for him. <laughs> he said, thank you very much. I'm so glad you did. <laughs> and I said, that was, that was kind of a, a, a bizarre moment that Rodney Dangerfield would be calling me up and saying, where should I play in Vegas? He was a great guy. Well, you know what? I could never believe, because I idolized, you know, Rodney Dangerfield. And I was, luck I was lucky enough to be able to work with good comedians right before they died, but like George Burns and Bob Hope. You did the George Burns 95th birthday yeah, show. I did on CBS, and I did Bob Hope's last two uh, uh, specials for NBC. You know, one of the things I always think about with great artists and the great acting guru, Larry Moss, once said... He was my acting teacher in New York when I studied acting. The oh, best acting teacher. The greatest. I was in a Broadway show with him. I was in So Long, 174th Street, and um, Bert Sheveloff directed, and it was... Um, uh, Robert Moore starred, and it was Larry Moss was his best friend, and um, Bert Sheveloff, who directed No, No, Nanette, and Stan Daniels wrote the music, who was a writer uh, on the Mary Tyler Moore show, Lonnie Ackerman, who was a friend of mine who we used to take classes at Luigi together. We were all in this Broadway show, and uh, Larry Moss and I got friendly, and then he became an acting teacher, and he was the most fantastic acting teacher. It's one of the best interviews we ever had I on the show. It. He has this thing where he says that a great artist has a hole blown through them at one point in their life and they search for the art to fill the hole and then they finish it and it's filled and then the next day it's empty again and you had the hole blown through you when you were 13. Exactly my mother dying yeah that was a bad one. Do you think that was something that helped drive you? Yes that was definitely something because I had no backup plan I had my dad had married somebody who wanted me out of the house and uh, my mother had died and 
I decided to throw myself into dancing because I was a good dancer and I was in a ballet company when I was 11 and 12. I was skipping school and taking buses to Miami Beach to be in shows in Miami Beach when I was 13 and 14. I went when I was 14. I went to New York with my best friend, who's still my best friend, um, with her mother, and we took uh, dancing lessons together in New York. And so, when I was 15, I knew my way around New York, and I graduated from high school early. I took 11th and 12th grades together. You graduated when you were 15. 15, yeah. And I went to. I, I had to figure out a way to keep my life together. And luckily, um, I was a good dancer, and I loved dancing. I got my first job in Zorba when I was 16, because I was almost, I think it was about five, six months before I became a professional dancer in the National Company of Zorba. How many auditions did you do for Broadway before you got the first gig? You know, I can't remember, but not too many. And I was, uh, I used to have to go to open auditions because I wasn't equity. And I was, um, I got this job and I was swing dancer. And Ron Fields was with the choreographer, and Cheetah Rivera was the star. Hal Prince was the director. John Ray. It was it was fantastic, a fantastic learning experience. And I kind of went through there, and um, as my dad said, uh, I brought myself up. And uh, you know, it doesn't always happen that way. So your dad wasn't in your life. You know, he wasn't. I mean, he'd answer the phone, but um, he said, you know, my life is with this woman, and you're done, and you go there, and uh, that's you know, I'll visit you sometimes. Or uh, he, he he passed away now too. He did the best he could with what he had, and I loved him very much, but he was a strange guy. So um, I think, you know, that kind of, it scares me because um, I say to my daughter, I can provide you with everything except adversity. <laughs> I can't give you adversity. You've got a wonderful life. You've got parents who love you. And sometimes, you know, I see kids who have a lot less working harder than she is because she's so comfortable. And, you know, I don't know if you can have that ambition and that drive, as you said, as Larry said, unless there's something that has really gone on with you. But then I see Taylor Swift and she was born on and grew up on a Christmas tree farm with people who loved her and she's doing OK. So, you know, whatever my daughter wants to do that makes her happy is okay I just want her to, to love to do something I often think to myself with my kids I tell them I love them all the time I support them tell them I'm proud of them and I wonder if that's going to make them less extraordinary I the same thing because they don't what, what do they have to overcome I tell her she can't watch television unless she works I won't I she, she's not allowed to you know unless she practices the piano and the guitar, and now she's in an opera, her opera program at her school, which we had the fundraiser for yesterday, and we're very excited. We raised $10,000 and for the program because um, I want her to go to public school because I don't want her to go, you know, be with all these elitist people. I'm doing the same thing. Now, granted, the Malibu school system is a great school system, but people look at me like, what? No, I just don't. I, I, this is the world, and you have to be in the world. And, you know, I just think to give her some focus in reality, um, because, you know, she's got a very comfortable life. She should be able to see, you know, people who are of different, you know, different levels of, of um, monetary satisfaction <laughs> so she can identify with them. And I think that helps. And I think the fact that I don't, I, I don't indulge her, I mean, a lot of, and it's funny, a lot of the kids who have less money have more. They've got a surfboard. She doesn't. 
they've got a golf cart. She doesn't, you know, they've got things that, but you know, I just don't, I want her to be, I want her to work for things. They, some people think I'm crazy. They, why, why do you, and I, cause that's the world. You have to be in the world. You know, I don't, I'm not, and you know, you, you can't be in a bubble your whole life. You know, I was, I was working when I was 16, you know, that's what made me who I am. So, you know, she's going to do courses this summer and she's going to do charity work and that's what's going to happen. She has you to guide her and be her mentor, you and your husband. Yes. When you were making the transition from dancing the comedy who were your mentors who would take you aside and say, Rita, this is fantastic, but if you adjust this this way and do this? You know, I used to work with, um, she passed away now, and I loved her so much, Marjorie Gross. She was my first writing partner, and I met her at Catch a Rising Star, and she was a very, a wonderful comedy writer. And to paint the picture of Catch a Rising Star for you all, it was a comedy club on 78th Street and 1st Avenue. And it was a little rectangular comedy club, probably was three times longer than it was wide. It had a bookcase behind the stage. There was a house band that was there for years. A lot of the times when Rita was performing, the late night people would go on like Gilbert Gottfried and they'd just be doing a whole routine they're back to the crowd. The only person was there sometimes when I was on was my reflection. There was a big mirror and there was nobody else there. I was playing to myself. But there were also <laughs> musical acts that were on. The Rick Pat, Newman. Pat Benatar and you'd have people like that. And Richard like, Belzer was there all the yeah. time. It was fantastic but the setup and the sight lines were such that you always looked to your side either way. And there was smoke because it was, it was legal to smoke there. So you were always performing in a haze of smoke and to people who had too much to drink. So um, we were we were both female comedians, and we used to uh, make it a, po a point two or three times we would go to uh, get together in either her apartment or my apartment, and we'd write jokes together, and we'd just make each other laugh hysterically, and we'd watch Mary Tyler Moore, and we would, when we couldn't think of anything, we'd go to the movies, and um, we'd always hang out in the clubs all night together, and Ronnie Shakes, why did everyone pass away? And they passed away very young, these people. He was my mentor, and I would listen to Ronnie Shakes, how he crafted a joke, and um, he would come up to me and he would say maybe you could use this word instead of that word and uh, he was just one of my very favorite people of all time so you just have to find you know also uh, someone who lives near me who I was friendly with who I went to Australia with and in fact my husband produced a show Larry Amaros who wrote for Joan Rivers he was the house MC of yeah. Catch a Rising Star he's still my good friend of course Louis Ferranda booked the room for Louis. so long I love Louis he was the bartender then when I was there so it was you know we and I remember some people used to tell me, um, they'd say, could you write jokes for me? Because I could do the jokes, but I just really don't want to hang around there all night and, you know, try jokes at 2 a.m. I used to say, that's the point of it. You've got to write your own jokes. You've got to hang out there till 2 a.m. And they said, well, we don't want to do that. And I said, well, then don't be, don't be a comedian. That's the problem with the new generation. Like you said, these new stars, they do a piece that they really work on hard. And then they film it and they put it on YouTube. And then somebody wants to see them. And they've got two minutes. They Sometimes they've got 30 seconds because it was a vine or whatever those six seconds. It's the repetition that makes you great. Every night you got to do it. When I watched your first HBO Young Comedian special, I'll never forget when I saw you do it. I'm just going to say the punchline. Sometimes they leave skid, skid marks. marks. Oh my gosh, that was my first really big joke. Uh, when, how you break up with a guy. Because I had all these boyfriends and, you know, I... 
I used to have to write jokes about them because that's who I was with. And I remember that joke uh, got used in a movie. I forgot which movie. It got used in a play on Broadway. Um, I remember <laughs> it was uh, How You Break, If I Want to Break Up with a Boy I, or Man, I Never Say This Isn't Working Out for Me or I Don't Want to See You Anymore. I always say, you know, I love you. I want to marry you. I want to have your children. Sometimes they leave skid marks. That was my big, that was my ending joke for so long. And it was in a movie and in a play. I was very proud. And people say, you know, are you upset that people someone steals your joke and I said well I was a little bit because I'd worked hard on that joke and that was my big joke but I'm always writing a new joke so um you can't be you can't be that precious and there I have got notebooks upstairs and I've got you know my phone with all my notes in it and I'm always going to be doing the next joke and it's such a fractured universe that even if somebody um does a joke that you you had not many people are going to hear it not many people are going to remember it and I just say forget about it and I write a new joke. I used to write jokes about guys not getting involved. <laughs> there was a tennis joke. He couldn't say 30 love. He kept saying 30, I really like you, but I have to see other people. Yeah, that was it. So um, I remember and I had a nut, two boyfriends in a row who said they didn't want to get involved. And I second boyfriend, I actually said, I already have a joke about this. Can you say something different? Because this is boring. And so, but when I, my daughter writing songs, you know, I have to tell her what happens in her life is what's going to be in her songs eventually and um, that's what you have to take you have to take things that are happening and I write them into jokes or stories or books or punchlines or whatever your creative process is when I heard the punchline sometimes they leave skid marks the thing that came to my mind was I spent the summer in a wheelchair just the whole trajectory of the timing and then the uppercut of Woody Allen, where he was talking about the bully. Well, because I used to listen to those things. I used to diagram Woody Allen albums. And I used to say, where is, where is the laugh coming? Why is it coming there? And um, I have all these notebooks that look like electrical currents because I would sit there and I'd go, oh, these two things come together at the same time. And, that, and I have all these... Someday, you know, I think I want to do some kind of book about comedy that um, because I have so many of my own rules... Um, what constitutes um, a recognition joke, a rule of three jokes, a relationship joke, a, uh, a, something you relate to in a reality joke, an exaggeration joke, a visual joke. And I think my ambition is always to mix them up to keep the audience a bit off balance. Do you mind sharing with our audience some of your rules? Well, it's just when I write a joke, I put it into a category in my mind. I'm not that organized. I heard you're very organized. I heard you have notebooks and notebooks. Yeah, but they all, I can't read anything in them. They're just awful. I mean, they're, Martin looks at it. Because, oh, remember, this is another thing that gave me an incentive. Because um, when I first came to Los Angeles, Sandy Hackett, who was a friend of mine. Buddy Hackett's son. Um, invited, he wanted to be a comedian. He used to hang around the comedy clubs. And he opened for his father. Yes, and I, um, he invited, he had a big party at Buddy Hackett's house in Beverly Hills. And I was living in what was a teeny little room that I was renting from an old friend of mine who I knew from New York, who uh, we were singers and dancers together in New York, and she had a big house, and I rented the little uh, guest house where I had to go at the back stairs, and the kitchen was in the bathroom, you know, it was just... <laughs> and I was invited to Buddy Hackett's uh, house by Sandy Hackett, and I looked around and I thought... Jokes built this house. I've got to write a lot of jokes 
and maybe I can have a really nice house. <laughs> and that's what I did. Wow. I said, I'm going to write a really, a whole lot of jokes, and I'm going to build a really nice house. And speaking of Vegas, Buddy used to tell me, Barry, in 1953, I was making $175,000 a week in Vegas. Wow. And when I always asked him, who's the best comedian ever? And he would always say, I am. Mm. He was very funny, Buddy Hackett. I used to like when he was interviewed on television. I remember one thing. He said, um, I want to keep making more money and they said wine is so to keep the rest of my money down <laughs> <laughs> what's one rule of yours of how comedy works well i'll tell you um you know i like it when it pivots on the last word when it has a a, a, a concise sound on the last syllable it's just using the correct word at the end is sometimes all makes all the difference. Ronnie Shakes helped me with this joke when I, it was a joke where I said, um, my grandmother buried three husbands. Two of them were just napping. <laughs> and um, I remember the first version I had was two of them were, were just sleeping and Ronnie Shakes took me aside and got a chuckle. And he said, you know, Rita, napping is a funnier word than sleeping and maybe you should try it. And I did it and it was, it, it just worked. So, you know, you have to be careful always with the last word. And you can never, why I hate double entendres is double entendres split a vision and split a thought. So when you have a double entendre, it's never going to be funny. That's why it doesn't produce a laugh. It produces a uh, like that because it has to be a, uh, a very, very specific thought, you know, okay, here, and I'll give you an example of a visual joke where you put two things together and when I say um, one of my friends wanted to lose weight and she did that operation where you have that balloon put in her stomach but she sneezed and it came undone and she flew around the room, you know. So you have a visual of a balloon then you have the balloon in the stomach, then you have the sneeze, and then you have the visual because you know what a balloon does when it, and then you have the person flying around the room. So that's an example of a visual joke when all the things come together. And, um, you know, then I have different jokes, rules of three jokes, where um, my, one of my first jokes was, because I used to read books a lot and try and get ideas from books. I remember reading The Making of a Psychiatrist and one of his... Um, the, the front little thing is uh, neurotics build castles in the air, psychotics live in them. And I thought those were, that was a good beginning. And then I wrote a third line, which was rule of three, my mother cleans them. <laughs> so, you know, that's the rule of three joke where you have the third thought that goes with your personality. But it has to go with your person, who you are. That's why when people say, tell me a joke, I can't really tell you a joke. I can tell you the things that I think of. But if I say two guys walk into a bar and a dog sits on it, you know, that's not me. That's something that's so far related for me, I can't even begin to say that. So that's just, I have to do things that come from me. One of the things that surprised me, going back to that set, where you said, I tell them I love them. I tell them I want to get married. I want to have your children. I want to have your children. Now, what shocked me was I thought it went against how you normally deliver jokes. You didn't leave them on the cliff. You said, I want to have your children. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they leave skid marks. Mm -hmm. You didn't create a beat before you delivered the punchline and it's still gotten the applause break. You gotta do it when it feels right. Sometimes, you know, it, it could have been that particular night. Sometimes I take longer to do a punchline than other nights because an audience is like a dance partner and different audiences have different rhythms. 
And sometimes you can really take a long pause and they can be with you. And sometimes you can take a long pause and they can leave you. So it, you have to ev evaluate the kind of audience that you're working for that particular night. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, I am really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later... It'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. All right, I want to go way, way back. I want you to just talk about what it was like growing up, what the socioeconomic dynamic was, the finances, the family. My mother was sick for, um, got sick when I was about six, died when I was 13. So it was, uh, it was very tr tricky. And um, my father was a lawyer who didn't like practicing law, who wasn't very ambitious. And... Uh, we just always had enough money, like, to get to the next beat. You know, he, I remember I wanted to, you know, he did what he could. I, I was, I loved learning. That's another thing that I, was natural to me, is I wanted to be able, I, I was, I was a horse, I loved horseback riding. I played the accordion. You can't get nerdier than that. 
and uh, the piano. I put ballet lessons. So, you know, and he was really happy to keep me busy because what was happening at home was very sad. And, you know, my mother was in and out of hospitals all the time, and it was, it was bad. And uh, he never really let me know how bad the finances were. But, you know, we had to sell. He eventually had to sell. This, he didn't believe in health insurance, and uh, the costs were astronomical. He had to sell the silverware. He couldn't really afford heating in our little house we had. Um, I had this accordion. I found out he was paying a dollar a week <laughs> to, to, to afford this, uh, you know, for rent for this accordion. But he never really let me know what was going on because there was enough, you know, I, w I would come home, I would make my own dinner, and he would be working, and we had to have a nurse, and then my, my, um, I'd make my own dinner, and my, he would take me to ballet class, you know, and I'd spend all evening, and everything was beautiful at the ballet, you know, one of those things. And you were an only child? Yeah. yeah. So I was, I kind of just did my own thing. And what was your first inspiration that you wanted to tell jokes and be into comedy? What happened? I just noticed there weren't too many female comedians, and there were an awful lot of dancers and singers and actresses. And I said, well, maybe I should try a, an avenue that's not so crowded. But you were successful. You were on Broadway. I know. I did six Broadway shows. But I did it from when I was 16 to, like, 28. And I said, I, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I would like, I'll try something else. So I tried it. And I, I just, I really, really loved it. I still love it. What was the first time you went on stage? Where was it? How long did you take to write that first few minutes? Well, the first time I was... Um, I remember, you know, I was in Annie on Broadway playing Lily St. Regis, and there was a guy I was friendly with, Richard Walker, who was a singer, and he wanted to try out A Catch a Rising Star, and so did I. And we were too afraid to do it, uh, you know, by ourselves. So, we, and we were too afraid to only tell jokes because he was a singer. He said, I can't do it unless I'm singing. So we did this thing where we hired a piano player and we did songs and then it would stop and then we would tell a joke and then song, stop, tell joke. And we got on stage at Catch after a couple weeks of sitting on the pavement about two in the morning and it was awful. And Richard looked at me and was sweating and was a smile and he said, I never want to do this again. And I said, I'm going to do it again next week. And I just, I liked it. And he hated it. So the next week I auditioned by myself, and then I started auditioning at the Improv. And Chris Albrecht, I think, was the first. He was a doorman manager, afterwards the president of HBO, and now the president of Stars. Yeah. and he's been a guest on this show as yeah. well. Well, he, was, he said, um, you know, do you want to hang out? Because I think you could be funny. This was at the 44th and 9th Improv yeah. in New York? Yeah, because I used to go there after Annie, because I could walk there. I would go and I would take the bus cross town, and get to Catch a Rising Star after that. And I did that for a couple months, and then finally Bill Maher, who was the MC at that time, said, you know, you can do an actual set if you want because you've been working so hard uh, hanging around here all the time, and I, I had done an audition that was people liked, so that was, that was that. When you had your first break on Letterman, I know you did five minutes, but in your mind, how much A material did you have? I had really five good minutes. I can't remember what they were, but they were, they were, I remember my last joke. I had the joke because um, I had heard, because it's, again, it's just what you hear and how you use your time. I always tell my daughter, it's how you use your time. I mean, when I was on buses going from one club to the other, you don't just sit there. You take out your notebook 
and you try to figure it out. When you're watching TV, you're not just watching TV. You're figuring out, well, oh, is this something that I can use? And I tell her with, you know, when she's listening to songs, try to analyze the song. Where's the middle eight? You know, where is the, um, what, what is attracting you to that song? You know, where, where are they taking a breath? Where are they not singing? And what are they doing? With? So anyway, um, I was listening to TV and Howard Johnson's had a new slogan. If it's not your mother, it must be Howard Johnson's. I said, well, there's got to be something in that. If it's not your mother, it must be Howard Johnson's. And that was, I think that was my first big closer where I said, let me see if I can remember it. I stayed at, the, I stayed at Howard Johnson's. Oh, I can't, it was so long ago. And, um... The maid came in every morning and said, clean up your room. Yeah. <laughs> when I was leaving, the, uh, the lady at the desk said, doesn't matter, I'll be dead in a couple of weeks when I was leaving. Yeah. <laughs> You've done every talk show, Carson Letterman. You've done The Daily Show, Conan. You've been with all of them. Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase. <laughs> Arsenio. Yeah, Wayne Brady, Lisa Gibbons, yeah. <laughs> you name it. But the ones that were the late night talk show hosts, Obviously, Letterman was the king. Yeah, Letterman was all, he was our idol. What was it that he brought to everybody that made him so well respected that maybe a lot of these other people, when you did their show, it's not that you didn't love doing their show or want to do their show, but you just didn't have the same feeling about it. There was something so authentic about Letterman. I mean, he kind of let you in and let you know what he was really feeling and didn't pretend he was happy all the time. So I think he let his insecurity come through and his cynicism. He got down to where it was a more honest form of comedy and it wasn't as, um, it, it wasn't as commercial as the other forms of comedy and it didn't follow the rules that other, it was just, he was more iconoclastic, but in a way that we could all, we just all envied. I mean, just using Biff you know, to be on the show. And I did this tour with Larry Bud Melman and Emo Phillips. And Emo, Larry Bud Melman, and me in a van driving around for three weeks in the middle of the country <laughs> was so hysterical. I wouldn't give it up for the world. And we, we just had, we had a ball. And um, every time we would pass a Mexican, Larry Bud loved Mexican food. And Emo and I didn't. And Every time we'd press a Del Taco, we'd hear from the back of the van, Mexican's nice. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then Emo used to steal the coleslaw every night from the, from the uh, vegetable tray so he could have it for breakfast in the morning. It was such a weird little, weird little tour. And um, I was always mis-exercising because I would always find the gym and I would be exercising. And Emo loved swimming. And he would always swim wherever there was a pool in the hotel. And he'd always ask me at night, I'm not getting too muscular, am I? Because I don't want to look like a, you know, like I, I need to still stay my character. I said, no, Emo, you're not getting too muscular. Don't have to worry about it. <laughs> no one's going to mistake you for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, you have a great relationship with your husband. And you guys have worked together writing. You've written amazing films. They say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a guy if she's going to be with him. Did you know? No. No, I was... Um, he hired me to go to um, Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Festival. Me and Larry Amherst and Bill McCarty. And we went to Edinburgh, and he had a girlfriend. I had a boyfriend. And he was nice, and I stayed friends with him, and I'd always see him when he'd come through looking for shows and uh, 
he wrote me a letter like a couple times a year and then uh, one day he hired me to go to Australia and I had just broken up with my boyfriend and he had just broken up with his girlfriend and he had stopped smoking and I couldn't stand smoke because I'd been in those clubs so long with all the smoke. I said, I can't have smoke in my house. I just can't stand the smoke anymore. And he had quit smoking and he had broken up with his girlfriend and I always liked him. And I was in Australia and it was Christmas time and I moved in. And then I said, this, I'm just gonna have fun at Christmas. And then that's it, he moved back to um, California with me. And we lived there together in sin until his green card ran out. And then we got married, went to courthouse. <laughs> We got married. So it wasn't exactly a big wedding. How did you know that you could write screenplays when you never wrote a screenplay before? You just start. I, I read a lot of books about writing screenplays. Read all these books on comedy, you know, and any book on comedy I could find in the library and Sigmund Freud's analysis of comedy and everything. But to get a movie made, it's so difficult. How many screenplays did you write before that first a couple, screenplay? A couple screenplays that weren't very good that we threw away. So take us through the process of how you and Marty actually got... Peter's friends made? Well, we had been writing screenplays and studying screenplay writing, and um, Martin actually grew up with Emma Thompson and went to Cambridge with all these people, Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry, and uh, Emma had married Ken, Ken Branagh, and they were living with us, or staying with us while they were in California, and Ken had just done... Richard III, was it? And he needed to do another movie because it was he had another movie on his contract and didn't have a script. And the script he had, he hated. So Martin and I had been writing movies and we looked at each other and we said, we have to write a script. <laughs> this is Because another thing, life is timing, don't you think? If something is happening, you can't say, I'll do it later. Just do it now. Um, we sat down and we said, let's write about something we know and we had always said, wouldn't it be fun if one of Martin's friends, because one of Martin's friends actually married some kind of a lord, and he, she had a big castle in England. And she was always saying, sometime I want to invite all my friends from Cambridge to this castle, and we can have a fun weekend together. And we said, let's, and we found out that Ken had rent, rented this house with a movie that he didn't like he was going to make. And we said, well, let's quickly, let's write a movie set in the house. <laughs> because he's got the house. And let's write a movie about a bunch of people getting together in the house that were from college. Because I know all the... And so anyway, we just wrote about what we knew about. And we used a, a lot of the people that Ken and Emma had gone to school with. And uh, I wrote my part as an American because I one of my... Uh, big lacks of talent is doing accents. I can't do any accent. I'm horrible at accents. And so I said, I'm just going to be an American and I'm going to leave the film early because I'm really scared and I'm with all these really good actors and I don't want to be in the whole movie. So I wrote myself out of the movie. I said, I just want to leave the movie halfway through. <laughs> so so uh, I, that's what I did. And it was and it was a really good movie, and we were very proud of it. So why in the next movie that you guys wrote that got made with Jack Lemmon and Dudley Moore, mm -hmm. 
did you say to yourself, you know, I'm worthy of a role in this one? Um, I, I guess I had a little bit more confidence. I had already been in a movie, so I said, well, maybe I can be in it. But I still, they were. I was surrounded by a lot of good people, Christine Lottie, and, you know, to work with Jack Lemmon was just a dream, and Dudley Moore. And also one of the most underrated comedian actors that I know of is Richard Lewis. I love Richard Lewis. He was so good in that movie. He was, he's just really good. But he made me laugh so hard that Martin really, he got so angry at me because there's a big hospital scene when I'm having a baby. And every time Richard would wheel me down and he'd say something funny and I'd start laughing. I said, Richard, he's going to kill me. This is costing money. You have to make me, you can't make me laugh all the time. So, but it was fun. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, I'm going to choose one person randomly, and I will invite them to a live podcast, to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, I will Skype them in and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. You can tell me anything. One line, one sentence, a story, anything. Steve Martin. I love Steve Martin. He was, but again, it was so scary. He, I met Steve Martin because we have a friend who is a really good director, Jonathan Lynn, and his wife, Rita Lynn, who um, I just think is a wonderful person and invited us to dinner. And we walked in and Steve Martin was there. And I met him and I'm just, you know, when you're in awe of somebody, it's just... You know, you have to sit there. And, and then we kind of got to be friends with Steve, and he asked me to write the Oscars with him, one of the people to write. The, and I said, Steve, I've never written for anybody before except me. And he said, well, I have an idea. Pretend you're writing for yourself and then give me the joke. <laughs> and I said, well, I'll try. And then I, I, I did it, and we had, again, we had such fun. We would meet at Steve Martin's house, um, and he's so well-prepared. For, I think, six months before the Oscars started, or maybe eight months, and we'd meet once a month, and then give him what we had, and then he'd do it in a tape recorder, and we'd all, and then he'd have his chef prepare us lunch, and then we'd meet, like, as it got closer and closer, we'd meet more often until he would hone exactly what he wanted to do, and, um... And we would all sit back. It was just a fantastic experience. But it was very nerve-wracking because when, you know, I don't even like to play doubles in tennis because I like to be responsible for what I do. And, uh, you know, I just would feel so bad if something I wrote him didn't get a laugh. But luckily, everything was good, and he asked me to do it again. 
and I did it again. And then um, Whoopi Goldberg asked me, and I did it with Whoopi, which was he, she's she's a really nice woman too. So. Um, it was, it's not a natural thing for me to do. A lot of people don't understand this. When you're writing for a show like that, you could write a hundred jokes and... Oh, if two get in, you're, you're, you're a star. And also, you want those two to work that you've written. Bob Hope. I still love his, his movies, and they still make me laugh. Bob Hope being Crosby, the road movies. I think they're brilliant. And I worked with him at the very end of his career, and he was... Uh, determined to keep going no matter you know if he was he didn't see very well and he couldn't remember a lot of things and I was standing there we were doing a, a special at the Columbus Zoo I think it was and I was we had this bit that we were doing and he kept coming out and every time he'd come out and he'd tell the joke and he wouldn't get it exactly right and the audience would laugh and he, they'd have to do it again and he came out and the audience would laugh again and he wasn't right and he came and finally he'd come out and he'd do the joke right and the audience laughed and he whispered to me can you believe I can get away with this? <laughs> <laughs> Bette Midler Oh well Bette Midler was working um, in Las Vegas at the same time that I was working in Las Vegas and she brought her show to Vegas and she called me up and uh, asked me to write, a, Martin and I, to write a few things for her show. And, and we did. And then we got to be friendly with Bette and her husband. And she came to see Mac. She's, she's just extraordinary. She's an extraordinarily talented woman. And the thing that you have to remember about women in show business is really, I think it was Sally, somebody said it. I can't remember who said it, but... If you're a woman and you're in show business after you're 40, it's not because anyone else wants you to be in show business. It's because you really want yourself to be there because people love to throw women out um, after their prime in show business. That's just the nature of the game. They never threw you out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I found another place to work. I found Las Vegas. You're saying they threw you out. Well, not really. I just decided I didn't want to do that anymore. And I wanted... When I... When we went to Vegas, because I was always really successful in Vegas, um, when I went there, the people who were performing were um, Siegfried and Roy and Wayne Newton, you know, and I said, well, compared to these people, I'm young. <laughs> so maybe I'll be the young, and I was. I was the young person in Las Vegas because everybody else was older than I am. So I kind of found a place to go where, you know, I just didn't, you know, I was just tired of hearing... You know, we, that the new young 20-year-old was the new comedic find. And that's because it's run by men, and that's what happens. And when Madonna said the most feminist thing that she's done in show business is stay in show business, it's true. I mean, when Meryl Streep has to leave and live in New York, and Bette Midler left in New York, and, you know, it's just, you, it's very difficult for older women in Hollywood. So I kind of created my own little niche where I could go to work every day and raise my child and do my act, and that was fun. But you wouldn't have gotten that break. You filled in for somebody in Vegas. Yeah, the uh, crazy girls. And there's a lot of people who fill in for people in Vegas, and they never get asked to do anything. You filled in, and they gave you your own theater. Yeah, they built me my own theater. That, and, you know, you go, when they offered to build, us, build me my own theater, I mean, we had a beautiful house in Beverly Hills, and 
another thing, because I always like to, when I read books, Linda Opes, who we worked with uh, for a while, she said, I was reading her book, which is my favorite title ever, Hello, He Lied. Um, great producer. Yes, great producer, very, you know, brilliant woman. And she, we were reading her book, and it said, ride the horse in the direction it's going. And our horse kept going to Las Vegas. And every time we would go to Las Vegas, I would make a lot of money, and everybody liked me. And every time I would be in, in Los Angeles, something would go wrong. And we were writing movie after movie that wasn't getting made. And I was getting more and more frustrated because you, get, you just get manhandled. And even though we were doing fi well financially, creatively, we were kind of feeling very stifled writing movies that didn't get made. And when we went to Vegas and somebody said, the president of New York, New York said, I'll build you your own theater. We said, let's take a chance. Let's say yes. And then that's when we adopted our daughter. And I started being a mother. And I just started going to work every night. It was good. And then we built a house. And now I, I don't do it anymore. But I still go back to Vegas. And now I play Vegas two, three times a year. Is there a place of choice that you were? I was working in a casino off the strip called Red Rock. Because it was... I see. I have these weird reasons. Well, this is my reason as a manager. If you go to a place that's off the strip, normally... They need you more. They want to pay you more. They give you better percentages. Yes, and uh, they, they give me a suite and a pool and a cabana, and it's across the street from my in-laws, so I can cross them off the list. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and uh, so it just is, is very convenient. But there's also, I'm, I might be doing another casino on the strip, but again, my life is different now where it's not my main priority. Johnny Carson. He was great to me when I, when I finally got to um, get on that show. Because huh. even after I got on the show, I got bumped a few times. And I was on the show called The Bump Show with me and Rick Scheidner and Daryl. I can't remember. Uh, Daryl, his last name. So I finally got on The Bump Show. And it's just an absurd experience to watch somebody on television for that long and all I could think of when I sat down on the couch was to look at him and say you're Johnny Carson <laughs> <laughs> and he said and you're Rita Rudner and I went oh Johnny Carson just said my name it was very hard not to be starstruck but after that he became very friendly to me and he was a really shy guy and it was his, his stage persona was somebody who could be friends with you on stage but unless he knew you for a really long time he was shy but it got to the stage where he would always come into the makeup room early to say hello to me and I remember once when I was coming and I had I was leaving and he was going to stay and talk to me but he saw I was with my husband and with uh, a publicist or something and he just he looked at me and went, mm -hmm. he didn't want to talk to a husband and a publicist <laughs> but I can see when you talk to somebody for a living for 40 years or whatever it is, that you've talked enough. Carnegie Hall. That was a great experience. I did it three times, but only once by myself. And my dad actually came to Carnegie Hall, and all of my friends came, and all of the people I'd started in, you know, my, in comedy. And it was a very, very special night. And at the end, um, I thanked everybody who'd been so special to me in my career, and I forgot to thank my husband. And I said, well, you're so close to me. It just would be like thanking myself. <laughs> and I kind of got out of it. <laughs> Joan Rivers. 
incredibly classy lady, totally different from her stage persona, and just very considerate, together, driven. I remember doing her radio show at seven in the morning and me showing up in my pajamas and her showing up with a boutonniere, you know, <laughs> a perfectly tailored jacket and hair and makeup. And I said, Joan, this is radio. You don't have to be, I never go anywhere unless I look perfect. So, you know, she was a perfectionist and, and very supportive of other female comics. Andrew Dice Clay. Again, I get along with him really well. I've always gotten along with him, and he's a very personable, you know, friendly, down-to-earth guy. And when he asked me to do his, uh, his TV show in Vegas, and it was fun because uh, I kind of was able to do some things, you know, additions to the script. So we wrote in... Because what was expected where we wrote in bits where I was uh, angry at him and I didn't like him and I kept wanting to get away from him so it was it was fun to do but it wasn't at all the truth I mean I could hang around and talk to him for forever and we have a good time Dudley Moore Dudley Moore was kind of sad because there was something going wrong with him and he wasn't sure what was when we were doing the movie it was the last movie he ever did and he was one of Martin's idols because Martin's English and I always thought he was brilliant and there was you know he no one was sure what was going wrong with him but Martin was very very patient and you know I would just practice with him for hours and hours you know after this after to get him to remember how to do a scene and all of a sudden you could see and he would light up and do something that was really terrific and then all of a sudden you could see he would just totally forget what it was that he was doing so we did have to write a lot of dialogue where people couldn't see it but I was very privileged to be able to do the last movie he ever did with him George Burns well I didn't really know George Burns very well but he asked me to do that special and I always when I was studying Jack Benny and George Burns they were the two TV shows that I absolutely adored and people always said that I was kind of like Gracie Allen meets Woody Allen. That was, that, that was the analogy that some people would use for me. And I just, you know, I've read all of the books. His, uh, he had a, his manager wrote a book. About, I think the same manager he had, Jack Benny and George Burns. And I always used to read all those books that, uh, about their careers and, you know, how. And I remember some George Burns saying, I thought my career was over until all of a sudden my best friend, Jack Benny, passed away. And then I got that role. He did the Jack Benny part in the movie that Jack Benny was supposed to do. It was the two old comedians living together. And then he said he had a whole career resurgence that he never expected. Because after Gracie died, he just was lost. Phyllis Diller. She, I'm for, I have one of her paintings that she did for me downstairs. And she was such a talented woman. And I can't remember where I first met her, but we started hanging around together. And I had dinner with her a few times. And uh, we used to pick her up at her house in, in Beverly Hills. She had a gorgeous house. And she, again, always perfectly made up. Always, they were, and it was funny that both she and Joan were kind of addicted to plastic surgery. And she, she looked great. I mean, she really, and she was a chef, and she was a musician, and she was funny, 
and um, we were eating dinner one night and her eyelash started to fall off. And I said, you know, I'm going to have to tell you, it's going to be in your soup in a minute, Phyllis. You're going to have to take that off. And she went, oh, okay. And she took both of her eyelashes off and put them in her handbag. She was a very fun woman. Jack Lemon. I'm so excited that I even knew Jack Lemon. He was so even-tempered and such a wonderful guy to work with. And... I remember, you know, people get some people when they, they're big stars and they've won all these awards and they have their reputations for being difficult. And one night we had to shoot a scene that was, um, it was overnight because it was an amphitheater and he went on stage and he had to do a show and we had to wait till it got dark. And he wasn't a young guy, you know, he was, I don't know, late 70s or something. And, um, Martin said, well, what can I give you in your trailer to make you feel more comfortable? And he said, a coffee maker? <laughs> <laughs> you got it. And uh, one of the reasons we got him to do the movie was he wanted a place to stay with his dog and his wife. And we got him a place and play golf. And we got him a place on a golf course where he could bring his dog and his wife. Rodney Dangerfield. Again, meant a lot to me. Started my career off, really. Even though I'd done HBO before that, the thing that really stuck in people's minds was that day that Rodney came up to me at Catch a Rising Star and said, takes a long time, kid. Sometimes you never make it. You want to be on my special? (laughs) (laughs) Your proudest moment in show business. I don't really think of anything as being very proud. I like doing it. I enjoy it. It's always when I think of a new joke. I'm very proud of myself. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level. Well, that was not getting a uh, my own sitcom when Martin and I decided to move to Las Vegas, which is where we did very, very well financially and adopted a child and became parents. Last question. What advice would you have for the young person growing up in an environment that was tough, trying to figure out their way? Repetition and hard work. There's no substitution. Uh, there's, if you're going to get lucky, it's going to come from repetition and hard work. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. That's my life. Maybe somebody else sits in a drugstore and somebody says you're a star. It never happened to me. Hard work. Rita Rudner, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. I rode my horse in the direction it took me here to Dana Point, and I had my fortuitous confluence oh of events <laughs> by being here, and I'm so grateful you had me in your house. It means so much to me. Thank you. Want to see the rest of it? I would love okay. to. <laughs> okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary, I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website, ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on Michelle Singer from Los Angeles, California. Congratulations, Michelle. You are a winner. 
Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on L.A. Jill 7, a five-star review on April 4th, 2014, titled Weekly Listen. The review reads, Great Conversations. Thank you, L.A. Jill. Congratulations. You are a winner. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, with the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. This has been an episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, because you're going far. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over, so it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave. Down in the valley, a fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrycats.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.